okay, we are going to be transitioning over now to a new ser- sermon series. So I'm really excited about that. It's, it's uh, the book of Hebrews. And so if you could, uh, please stand with me for the reading of God's word out of respect for God's word. And today we're going to be uh, in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. Hebrew, we're going to be in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 5. And then we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. So we're going to jump. Um, and if you uh, don't have a Bible, you can follow on the screen uh, behind us here. So this is Hebrews, uh, again, 1, verses, one verse, starting in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name, much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to whom, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Chapter two, verse one. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So today we're going to open up the sermon series with a little bit of historical fiction. This was written by uh, George Guthrie, and it's the story of Antonius Bar David. So this is fictional, but it's historical fiction. So this is to kind of paint for us an image of what it would have been like to be uh, back in that time as part of the church and to be a Christian. And actually, I'm going to pull the mic off. And what I want you guys, oops, sorry. There we go. I'm going to sit down because it's a little bit of a long story, and I don't want to be a distraction here on stage. So if you just need to like close your eyes for a second to just kind of feel yourself pulled into the story or to kind of envision and feel what it was like, go ahead and do that. But I'm going to read this story and it'll take us probably about five or seven minutes or so. So this is the story of Antonius Bar David by George Guthrie. Antonius sat alone in a deteriorating second story apartment located in a slum on the slope of Esquiline Hill in Rome. As rain pelted the age-worn wall outside, a plate of bread and vegetables and a cup of sour wine rested on the makeshift table. The room had turned dark with the coming of this storm, and Antonius lit a small oil lamp against the gloom. With the light, hungry roaches materialized, scampering to the dark safety of cracks in the wall. In the apartment next door, a baby cried and the infant's father screamed obscenities at the infant's mother. 
An urgent conversation rose and then faded as an unseen pair of business partners walked down the stairs. Somewhere in the muddy street below, a unit of Roman soldiers marched past, driven under sharp orders from its commander. Antonius sat alone, thinking. That morning, his employer, a rough, burly fellow named Brutus, once again turned from the task of pricing fruits and vegetables to ridicule this young Christian. The verbal jabs had become as annoying as gnats darting to and fro in the shop's pungent air. Brutus was big, obnoxious, and cruel. Antonius cringed against the man's emotional blows, wishing he could strike back out of his hurt and embarrassment. Each time he turned the other cheek and received a slap in kind. Yet he bit his lip, nursed his wounded pride, and again asked the Lord's forgiveness for his thoughts. Persecution of the church in Rome had yet to result in martyrdom, but since the expulsion of Jews under the emperor Claudius, Christians had continued to be harassed to various degrees by both Jews and pagans. Upon the expulsion, some had suffered imprisonment, beatings, and the seizure of their properties. That was almost 15 years ago now. Antonius had not been part of the Christian church at that time, but had heard about the conflict. In fact, his own grandfather, ruler of the synagogue of Augustinus, had been one of the most outspoken opponents of the Christians. When at 17, Antonius converted to Christianity, the old man almost died inside, declaring Antonius dead in a shouting match that ended in tears and a tattered relationship. In recent months, abuse of the church had escalated with the amused approval of the emperor himself, and now emotional fatigue was taking its toll. Footsteps in the hall, a scream in the night, meaningless events that nevertheless set Antonius' heart racing. He had been told the cost of following the Messiah, but somehow his experience was different than what he had expected. In the beginning, he thought that his joy would never be broken, that he would always feel the presence of God. He had been taught that the Lord, the righteous judge, would vindicate his new covenant people. Did not the scriptures, speaking of the Messiah, say that God had put all things in subjugation under his feet? But the church had taken a great beating lately, and members of its various house groups had become discouraged and were questioning whether Christ was really in control. In their hearts, they wondered if God had closed his ears against their cries for relief, and some in their disillusionment doubted and left the church altogether. Antonius Bar David remembered the traditions of the synagogue and the support of the Jewish community, the joy of the festival, festivals, festivals, and the solemn celebrations of the Jewish calendar. He appreciated the fellowship of Christ's community, but genuinely missed the traditions of his ancestors, and he missed members of his own family. He watched them from a distance as they walked together to market by the Tiber River. Some of them still would not speak to him and passed him on the street as they would a Gentile. That was difficult, and today his loneliness closed in around him like a dark, damp blanket. To make matters worse, He was one of the poorest members of the church. When Antonius became a Christian, he lost his job as a tailor's apprentice in the Jewish quarter, and he now spent his days sorting rotten produce, sweeping the floor, swatting flies, and receiving orders from obnoxious Roman slaves shopping for rich mistresses. 
He stooped so low as to take pieces of rotten fruit home to supplement his meager food supply. Even rich men's slaves fared better. Earlier in the week, Gaius, a kitchen slave of an equestrian who lived in the area, tossed him a handful of overripe figs, saying, Here, Christian, change your cannibalistic diet by taking a bite of some good fruit. Laughter hung with gnats in the air. To be poor and Christian invited double portions of ridicule. Antonius had missed the weekly meal and worship for the past two weeks, and his heart had cooled somewhat towards the little house group. A spiritual itch in the back of his spirit warned him, cautioning him concerning his loss of perspective. Yet in recent days, he had begun to snuff such thoughts from his mind as quickly as they came. Antonius's bitterness over his current circumstances was growing and slowly obscuring the truth. That night, the believers were to meet for worship and encouragement. Rumors had it that leaders had received a document from back east somewhere. Although discouraged and tempted to skip the meeting again, Antonius's curiosity was aroused, and he decided to travel the short distance to the neighborhood house at which the fellowship was to meet. Entering the gathering room, he spoke greetings to several friends who also looked tired from the day's work. The hostess offered something to drink and friendly banter, but dejection hung like a cloud over the room. When the meal was finished, the group's leader, a good and godly man of almost 70 years, finally arrived. Joseph. Joseph was a bit out of breath, having come from a meeting with the other leaders halfway across the city. He was visibly moved as he stood smiling before the group of about 20, his hands shaking slightly from advanced age. After a few words of introduction, Joseph took a deep breath and explained he had talked with the other leaders into allowing his group the first reading of the scroll. And with a twinkle in his eye, the elder said, I believe you will find this quite relevant. He unrolled the first part of the parchment and began reading with vigor. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Let me pray for Pastor Matt as he prepares to bring us the word this morning. Father, thank you for uh, this church. Thank you for the ways in which you have blessed us. And I pray, Father, as we dive into the book of Hebrews here for the next uh, few weeks, um, that your spirit would um, move in us, change us, expose areas where we need to uh, repent and to grow, but also just an encouragement to those of us, Father, who as Christians have grown weary and, um, and are just tired and discouraged. I just pray that your spirit would, uh, would mold us into your image and encourage us at the same time. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace be with you. Did you enjoy carpet time? My, I have a first grader, so I'm, I'm jealous of her routines of sitting around the carpet and hearing stories. So I, I, I hope it, that was meant to obviously just draw us in, give us uh, an imagination as we enter into this great book, the book of Hebrews. Um, so yes, as we, we do start today, uh, a series um, exploring the book of Hebrews, and we'll be camped out here for about 10 weeks. And so you'll, if, you, if you don't know, if you're not familiar with the book of Hebrews, stick around you know, and, and by the end, I, I think you really will know it quite well, which is amazing. Hebrews is just, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful 
of a difficult book, but it is a word of hope. It's a word of endurance. Um, it's, uh, it reminds Christians that they were meant for better things. That if you're a Christian, you were meant for better things. It's a book full of challenge. It has some weighty passages. <laughs> There's weight just at the, at the introduction. Um, it actually has, I would say, some of the weightiest passages in all of the Bible. Some really difficult ones to read and to sit with. Uh, but man, the book of Hebrews is, is just chocked full of grace. It's full of grace for you. And if you let it, it will lift you. It will encourage you. It will strengthen you. How do you read it? Let's just start there. This, today, I'm, I, I really kind of want to do some overview and just prep us for the book. So this might feel a little bit luxury or teach heavy. Uh, how do you read the book of Hebrews? I would say you open it and sit and listen like you're listening to a sermon. What I mean by that is if you notice how it began, or if you have ever read it before and you're familiar with it, it begins very different. Like if you were to read the New Testament straight through, you know, you start with the Gospels, then you, you get to Acts, and you start reading, and you'll notice something, you'll notice a pattern that when you, by the time you get to the book of Hebrews, which is near the end of the Bible, right, uh, things take a radical shift just in the language, the way it begins. Um, like for instance, if you, so for some of you, if your Bible, like this particular Bible, it's literally the first page of Hebrews has Philemon right next to it. And if you notice in Philemon, the very beginning, it begins this way, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and to Timothy, our brother, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. And then, you know, if you, or if you turn to uh, like James, you know, the, you know, the, the next book, it begins uh, here, we'll just look at it this way. Verse one of the book of James, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. <laughs> My point is this. Look up any of these books from Acts to Revelation. They all have a similar pattern. They're written like letters. They're letters. And they have that pattern of letting you know right up front names of people, who is writing it and who they're writing to. And you get to Hebrews, and it's like a Disney movie. Long ago, at many times and in many ways. Completely different. It's, there's, just, there's just mystery around Hebrews. I think that's my, in part why you actually don't hear a lot of sermon series on the book of Hebrews. I'm the idiot that attempts to do it um, alongside the other uh, pastors. So H Hebrews is just full of mystery. I think that's what kind of makes it beautiful. Um, and so it does read a little bit like a letter. So that's why we, we actually have in our Bibles, like this Bible actually says the letter to the Hebrews. So I, I, I don't want you to think of it as being wrong. But I actually think, as I agree with a lot of other scholars that say, it, it's a lot more like a sermon, like a pastor writing to a church. Um, you know, actually in chapter 13, at the end of the book, the author calls it, quote, a word of exhortation. A word of exhortation. And the marks of the book do, do reveal kind of a first century pastoral sermon. So who's writing it? Who is this pastor? Well, there's a lot of educated... If you're churched, you might know this. There's a lot of educated guesses out there as to who wrote the book of Hebrews. Truth is, we don't know. We just, we just don't know. He never names himself, unlike the, all the other letters in the New Testament. Who is he writing to? Who is this sermon written to? Well, we don't know for sure. 
as uh, Pastor Eric said, Antonius is a, is a made-up figure <laughs> by a scholar, George Guthrie, who wrote that to just kind of give us an, really a, an imagination for what the typical audience probably looked and felt like. We can be almost certain that they were Jewish Christians. If you notice, um, if you've ever read it before, and, and in some degree, just the first chapter of Hebrews, you get a feel for this. But if you notice, um, there's, it's chock full of Old Testament images, wordplay, quotations. Another pastor says, you know, the author of Hebrews is like an Old Testament gunslinger. I mean, this guy knows his Old Testament like no one. I, this guy is next level educated. And the Torah, you know, the instruction, you know, the first five books of the Bible. He knows the Psalms quite well. I mean, who here is an expert in the book of Leviticus? Raise your hand, right? No, I mean, I'm, I'm not making fun of anyone. It's just not where we spend our days and time. I'm going to study and really own the book of Leviticus. This guy knows the book of Leviticus really, really well. He knows it so well, he can do wordplay with portions of it. He's like a poet. It's quite remarkable what he can do. Just in, the fr- and just in the section we read this morning, he referenced Psalm 2, Psalm 89, 2 Samuel, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Did you catch that? You know, it's quite amazing. Throughout the book, he quotes and references with such sophistication and such little preface. It's like he just launches right into it. It's clear that the audience is deeply familiar with the Old Testament as well. Like he just assumes they get it. Right? He just assumes that they know the traditions. The, they, that he just assumes they know the stories of Abraham, Moses, the wilderness, the temple sacrifices, the roles of Levitical priests, the ancient prayers, the ancient songs. Hebrews is so full of Jewish history and religious law that, quite frankly, it confuses us and it oftentimes and maybe bores you. You know what I mean? Like if you've ever attempted to read the book of Hebrews... You've maybe made it to chapter 7 where it starts talking about this guy named Achizedek and you're like, uh, I'm going to skip to 12. And you just skip because you're like, this is weird. I don't even know what's going on here and I don't want to do all the citation work, you know, the, the little footnotes. It's just too much time. I mean, I'm not, again, not mocking it. It's just like if I did a poll right now and said, hey, name your first or your favorite five books of the Bible. My guess is the book of Hebrews isn't going to be on the top of your list. It's just not the book you go to as your daily devotional um, because it's just not as easily as accessible for us uh, because we're not ethnically Jewish. I mean, sorry if you're sitting here this morning and you're ethnically Jewish, but you're not maybe steeped in the Torah. You didn't get raised up under all of these deeply Jewish traditions and these Jewish stories. Although the wordplay... Uh, the quick offhanded references to Jewish history seem foreign to us. There are aspects, though, to this audience, this, this Jewish Christian audience, uh, and what they felt and what they needed and, and, and that deeply overlap and resonate, I think, with us here sitting this morning. Many scholars think, and I agree, um, and this is obviously Guthrie who wrote the fictional piece. He feels this way as well, that this author, this pastor, is writing to a house church or a group of house churches in Rome in the mid-60s AD. Now, if there's any history nerds in here, uh, which is awesome, by the way, and I would love to sit with you. Um, I wish I was more of a history nerd. 
you probably know something about the mid-60s AD. It was a very contentious time, a very difficult time to be a Christian. Uh, between the emperors of, of Claudius, you know, um, who did some pretty... Um, uh, he, he took a very harsh stance, let's just say, towards the Christians and the Jewish people in the year about 41. And to the, obviously, you probably know, you might know more, a little bit more about Emperor Nero, but between that time frame, um, Christians, it was not easy to be a Christian. And martyrdom really took up, took up in the, in the late 60s. If you know the great Roma fire, that was 64 AD. Uh, many looked suspiciously at Nero uh, for that fire. Um, and so what, what we believe is, is that Nero, by form of distraction, turned everybody's attention to the Christians. And this is at the point in history when Christians were literally sought after and executed. So if that is true, things are difficult during this time. Um, uh, chapter 13 speaks of Timothy being released. It speaks of Italy. And throughout the book, there are remarks to pressure and persecution, which all points uh, to this time period in the mid-60s of Rome, um, which is well, well documented. Um, they are likely second-generation Christians as well. Um, so they're like early adopters to Christianity, but they didn't walk with Jesus himself. It just says right at the beginning, it's from, they heard from those that were with him. And they've probably been Christians for some time. In chapter 10, he reminds them of their earlier years when they first learned about the gospel. And he challenges them in chapter 5 that, that by now they should be teachers of the gospel. So if you can imagine, these are early adopter Christians in the first century that have been Christians for maybe 15, 20, 25 years. If all of this that I'm saying is true of these people, and based on the context clues throughout the book, these particular Christians... And this is what I want you to imagine and, and, and feel inside you, yourself. They are tired. They're tired. They're quite possibly are experiencing a rising tension in the Greco-Roman environment around them. You know, where once Christians were ignored and simply just mocked occasionally, they are now increasingly seen as a nuisance and a threat to the peace of Rome. But they've also been shunned by their Jewish community as well. Think about it. They've abandoned their ancestry. At least that's how they feel, their Jewish counterparts. You know, Jesus wasn't embraced by all, right? <laughs> At this point, it's still kind of a cultish movement. So think about it. Their family members, their former friends from their childhood, basically have turned and shunned them. They're not welcome in the temple. Where are they welcome? Hence why they have these little house churches where they meet and they eat bread, they drink wine, they sing songs, and they pray together. They're complete outsiders. They don't fit anywhere. It's one thing for people within the society at large to look at you with suspicion. It's a whole other drain on you when your own family or your friends have turned against you. And this is why the book of Hebrews reads like a sermon, pleading for endurance. These are Christians who are clearly tired. Some are probably second-guessing this life of discipleship to Jesus. They're tired of not fitting anywhere. They're tired of the sacrifice it requires. They're tired of the mockery. They're tired of the alienation. Uh, they're tired of feeling misunderstood for what they believe about Jesus, about where they sit, and about the future. They're tired of fearing what people think of them. Some of these people uh, receiving this 
sermon probably and may quite possibly felt spiritually confused. And they're wondering if going back to a Jewish way of life would just lighten the burden on themselves. Some may be spiritually stalled out, you know, like spiritually depressed altogether, wondering whether former interest and passion in Jesus was 10, 15 years ago, you know, when they were 18, when they were 12, or when they were, when they were, when they were 32. You know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, man, I was like, I was hanging on every word about Jesus. And now, where is that? Turning and surrendering to Jesus, you know, for the first time takes a lot of courage. For those of you sitting here this morning that are Christians, you know that. But holding on to Jesus over the course of 10, 15, 20 years, that takes a whole nother kind of courage. A whole nother kind of stick to If they've been following Jesus for 15, 25 or more years, there's an awful lot that one life that your life can go through, an awful lot that will tempt and rob you of your attention and interest in Jesus. And if you've been following Jesus for more than maybe, let's say, a year or two, there's something about that I think you know connects, that resonates with you. Suffering, money, physical or mental struggles can rob your attention in Jesus. And this is probably, of course, what was happening in this audience which was the impetus of this pastor writing this sermon to them. And so I don't know for you where you are at this today, this week, this, this, at this point in the year, but I just wonder, like, is, would any of that connect with you? Like, do you feel spiritually stalled out? Spiritually depressed? Uh, spiritually confused? Wondering where your passion was maybe 10 years ago. You feel like maybe you've really drifted like a boat from the dock. I don't know. I mean, I think that there are a lot of people, and there's a whole lot of statistics that I thought about getting into. I had them listed out and I deleted them from my sermon Maybe I'll bring them back out later in the series. I think there's a a whole lot uh, that we can look to statistically and generally speaking that reveals that the church, the Christian church, is definitely in a place of crisis. Or it's in a place uh, where we should stop and think, what's happening to people? What's going on inside of people? There is definitely a shift taking place. That's the kind of place, this tired, worn out, spiritually stalled out, spiritually depressed, that's the kind of place the author of Hebrews speaks into. And his opening message to them is this. Long ago, this is one, verse one, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That's the dead giveaway right there that he's speaking to a Jewish audience. Our fathers, the prophets. Right? He's talking about Abraham, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah. He's saying, God is always, you guys know this, this is him speaking to them. He's saying, you guys know God has always spoken into the creation. You fully believe that. You've always believed it. 
And then he changes his tune and he says, but, this is verse 2, in these last days, currently, he has spoken to us by his son. And then he goes into this huge resume building thing. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I wish I could write sentences like that. So, again, he is saying, friends, God, you know, you believe, you fully believe and are aware that God has always spoken in different ways into the creation. But something happened, something radically different was happening when Jesus showed up. God isn't just speaking down into the mess. He's not just speaking down into our broken and compromised world anymore. He has entered into it. It's really different. And so for this author, he is operating out of this worldview, right? This view of Jesus. To look at Jesus is to look at God himself. To look at the character of Jesus is to see the very character of God. We've all at some point in our life have said things in our hearts or outwardly in prayer. God, just speak to me. Just speak. And this author would say he has in Jesus. Like he, he came down, he stooped down, entered into the mess. For this author, if you want to be close to God, if you want to know God, if you want to taste salvation in God, you must surrender and listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And he backs the statement by citing a bunch of Old Testament quotes um, and we did a little bit of it, but I didn't do all of it. That's all of the, this string of quotations in chapter one that you're like, what is going on here? It's a lot of stuff out of the Psalms, various places in the Old Testament. Uh, but what he's doing is he's, like I said earlier, he's kind of giving this, this resume in, of Jesus. Um, and so he does all of this, of course, to make this lesser to greater argument if you caught it. I'll read it, where he gets to the point in chapter 2. He says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So, okay, so look, what he's doing is he's drawing off an assumption that you and I may not have. And that is this. Throughout the whole Bible, to not listen is, is basically a form of disobedience. That's just how the Bible views it. I know you, you, as, if you're like a parent and you think of your kid, you're like, absolutely, Absolutely. Well, so for the, for the Bible, which you have to understand it, and you could, you could go and you could 
draw out this analogy, you go to places like Leviticus 26, which I know isn't probably a part of your daily reader. Um, But Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 27 or 28, if you're like one of those, if you like homework, there's your homework. Go read those and you'll see that the Bible draws out this analogy that for God, when he speaks into creation, he's like, if you don't listen, that's just, that's you disobeying me. Like, and so he's operating out of that assumption that listening is that big of a deal to this author. And it's really all, and, and, and he's, he's thinking that way because it's been communicated that way all along. To not listen is to be disobedient. In addition to that, uh, within Jewish history, because this is the part that maybe confused you, uh, or, or if in the past you, it's been confusing to you, within Jewish history, they fully believed that in the past, God had delivered their precious law right, on Sinai through the mediation of angels. That angels were the one that actually delivered this to Moses. This is, what's, this is just something that they fully uh, embraced and believed. And therefore, since that word, the word that came from God through angels to Moses and was given to Israel, since that word was good, true and binding, to not listen to it came with dire consequences. And he is saying, this preacher is saying to them, you guys know that. You've been raised up believing that. Therefore, right, he shifts. Therefore, he deduces now that God has stooped down. It's not just speaking through a mediator onto the top of a mountain. He has stooped down into the compromised, broken mess that you and I operate in. He's saying, since he's now come down, in the, taken on flesh himself in Jesus, now that he's entered into our suffering and suffered himself on the cross, right? And he's done all that to send us a final word, a definitive message of his love and his grace and his invitation into a whole new life. He's saying, this is his deduction, how much more should you be listening the question of listening is the major emphasis throughout the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, he says he has spoken. God has spoken through his son. Chapter 2, he says we must pay attention to what we've heard. Chapter 3 and 4, he says today, if you hear, don't harden your heart. Chapter 12, he says do not refuse the one who is speaking. So if, if you get nothing, if you know nothing of the, if somebody comes up to you and says, what's the book of Hebrews about? You can just say, it's like, pay attention. It's telling you, God is speaking, listen. What's he saying to you? And so the beginning of this book sets the stage with this rhetorical question. He's asking them, essentially, quote, has your listening, your humble attention to Jesus drifted over time? That's what he's asking of them. Is Jesus, not, is Jesus just not interesting to you anymore? Is he not worth everything to you anymore? And I get it. It's just like, it's an incredibly weighty thing to say about listening. Um, like when I was, when I was, I've been studying the book of Hebrews, studying the first couple chapters uh, uh, intensely, I'm, I'm thinking, gosh, could you like preheat us a little bit? Like it just... Just boom, right there, super weighty, right at the beginning. These are weighty lines for, the, you know, for an opening lines of a sermon. But man, that's just the point. Um, 
you and I, and they probably even, we assume too much. We are way too casual about the practice of listening. You know what I mean? Uh, like truly listening, to truly listen, that's, it's incredibly difficult. It requires humility. It, it requires a ton of respect. It, it's an act of love. We're so bad at it as a culture, that's why everybody's paying therapists. Like, I'm not, I, they're super skilled at, at a lot of other things, I'm just saying, but like, we, we want people to listen to us, and no one listens to us. It's why when you're speaking to someone uh, who's close to you, like, a, like your spouse, or your f- best friend, or your parent, or whatever, and you're speaking in, to them, and you pick up on the fact that they're not listening, like they're just rehearsing what they want to say next, or they're just looking at their phone, what do you feel inside? Yeah. <laughs> Mad. You know what I mean? True story. Like there, are t- like there are times when I, if, if I'm experiencing that, I'll just stop talking. It's just like, well, I'll just wait and see if they even notice. And sometimes, you know what? They don't. They don't even notice because they're, they're not listening at all. And it's like, wow. And, 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 and we've all experienced it. And we've all done it. Like, we've all done that to someone. And it's just like it doesn't feel good, right, when that happens to us. I remember when um, Melissa and I were dating, we used to meet up after work and, uh, at, the, at local parks, and we'd just go on these really long, long, long walks, uh, you know, talking to each other. And I can just remember in those days, like, hanging on every word. I was just soaking up all her... Is she in here? I hope she's not... Oh, gosh, she's in here. <laughs> you were supposed to be somewhere else. So I remember, I remember like hanging on every word, just soaking up all the, you know, listening and hearing about her desires, her fears, her past experiences, her trivial preferences, you know, these sorts of things, the things you do when you're dating, right? Um, And then you get married. (laughs) You get married and over time, listening, oh, it just can be more challenging Amen? Amen. Uh, sometimes, you know, for us, full transparency, sometimes we'll be driving in the car or maybe we're cooking dinner together and after hearing her tell an entire story or hearing her go over her like weekly demands or whatever it is, I'll have to, after she's done, I'll have to in humiliation say, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening to a word you just said. You know, because sometimes there's like at the end of said statement or story or thing, like there's, if you just fake it and pretend, you may have just agreed to something. You know what I'm saying? And then it's like, what did I just agree to? You know, what did I just sign up for? And so it's like best, I've learned over the time, just like don't fake it, don't pretend. Like just say, I was not listening at all to you. I was doing this or thinking about my sermon or whatever. Uh, I, what is happening to me? I mean, you know, like, generally, like, or you, because you do it too, probably. What is happening to you and to me when you're in that spot or over time and you're doing it repeatedly? Like, some of you are never listening to your spouse. 
I mean, and I'm not, this isn't a marriage sermon, okay? I'm just saying, like, what is happening in you? Think about it. I, I, I think what's happening is over time, with familiarity, I am tempted by this lie that I know what I need to know. The story you are going to tell me about work today is the same story that you told yesterday. There's nothing new here for me. There's not a new insight that I'm going to be like, fascinating, tell me more. You know, I mean, I'm saying, and I fully grant, I'm telling you, that's a lie. And I think we're tempted by that lie and we believe that lie. You know what I mean? We're prideful. Uh, This is an aggressive statement, but I, I do think we're prideful. We get prideful and arrogant in our familiarity that there could not possibly be something new and fascinating in these, this person's story or these person's comments. I've reached the bottom of this person. I know them fully, right? This can't possibly be as important as my thing over here. Over time, I think the lack, or the, over time the familiarity, the lack of excitement, the lack of change can cause a drift in your attention. Now I say all that, of course, and you've made this connection already. I say all that, of course, because I don't think it's any different in your Christian life. Some of you think you've reached the bottom of Jesus. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you, this isn't an issue of I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I mean, it could be. That could be your deal right now. But I think for some of you, that's not your deal. Jesus just isn't interesting to you. Like you, you know what you need to know. And you moved on to other things. Maybe. And the Christians who first received this sermon were flawed. They were compromised humans, just like us, prone to let familiarity and the struggles of life rob them of their humble attention, right? Their challenge is our challenge. And so here's just what I want to invite us into. Uh, this week, just this week, and because the rest of Hebrews is going to, man, it's the, the rest of Hebrews, we're going to be teaching that. And, and, and it's just going to, it's got, it's going to teach us so many terrific things about Jesus. I mean, the book, when you study the book of Hebrews, it's just basically like laying out, contrasting one thing to Jesus and saying, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. That's the pattern of Hebrews. But for now, just for today and for this week, just for the sake of Jesus and your own souls and your spiritual growth, Man, I would just say this. I want to invite you into a process of inventory. Would you please be willing to do an inventory on yourself? And here's what I mean. I Just take time this week, like today, this week, if you, if you can, to take, some, take a few minutes, take an hour, whatever you can get, carve out for yourself. And just inventory, because if I said, hey, make sure you listen to Jesus Let's take communion and pray. You're going to be like, what? So here's what I would say. I would actually reverse engineer that. I would ask you and invite you to say, to sit still long enough this week to say, where is my attention? Like where, what's captured it? Just start there. What has my attention? What are you consumed with these days? What do you find yourself drifting towards all the time? 
What worries, what questions, what fears, what desires are you actually interested in lately? And look, man, do, if you can do this in silence, great. If you do this through prayer, wonderful. Journaling, for some of you, that's, that's the way that you'll process this out. That's great. Totally encourage that. But here's my suggestion. Um, as stuff bubbles to the surface, I don't care if it's like, man, I've just been consumed with my diet. Like, that's where my attention is. Or I'm, I've just been, my work, I've got this, this deal at work. I, you know, the kids. Like, don't overthink. I, this isn't about going on a sin hunt. Please, listen to me. Like, inventory your attention. As it comes to the surface, don't judge it. Don't judge it. Because if you judge it right away, I don't think you're going to actually do the work of really paying attention to what's going on in you. Don't judge it. Just let it, just name it. Like, just name what it is, whether it's a big deal or a little deal. Just name the thing that your attention is going to. Just notice where your heart, your mind is going. Just practice noticing where all of your listening and attention is going. And then maybe process it with a trustworthy friend. Maybe your spouse, maybe your community group. Obviously, I would invite you to process this with the Lord. Just here, Lord, here's where it is. Here's where my attention is. And I want to be someone who listens. And I don't know the way back to that. And you don't need to rush it, but just do that work. And so this morning, as we come to the tables... For our communion, I want to invite you to the table this morning. I want you to invite. I want to invite you to the table where Jesus is proclaiming. He's reminding all of us this better message that this this bread is His body represents His body broken for us, and that this cup of wine represents His blood shed for us. And whatever, whatever, wherever we've drifted, because some of you are in a million different places, and I can't even begin to understand or know all the places that you're in. But as you come to the tables this morning, I would just remind you that Jesus is saying, I have something better for you than what you're currently attending to. And just sit with that. There is a whole lot of people throughout the world right now that are consumed with a whole lot of things that are robbing them of hope and joy. And the very thing that will fuel you with hope and joy is the thing that you heard two years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it is for you. And I think it's going to take time for us, and I'm, I'm fully okay with that. The other pastors are okay with that. But I would just this morning invite you to that, let that message sit on you. What Jesus has for you is better than what you're currently caught up with. And so if you're a Christian, you're invited to come up to this station or this station and take part. Just take a piece of the bread representing Jesus' body, dip it in the wine or the juice representing his blood, and give thanks. Let us pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word, your word that has been spoken in very many ways, but you have spoken a better and definitive word, a final word in your Son. We don't want to neglect the thing that Jesus is speaking. And so let us be people who listen this morning. Let us be people that uh, get rid of the things inside of our heads that are banging around up there. 
that are robbing us of actually listening to the one who speaks a word of hope, a word of life, a word of peace to us. God, wherever my attention is drifting, please, God, pull it back to you. I ask that for myself, and I ask that for all those sitting here this morning. We love you very much. We are so thankful for your son, Jesus, showing us your true nature, your character, how humble, how loving, how willing to forgive you are. What else could we do except give thanks and praise? May we sing out this morning and glorify you as we leave. It's in Jesus' name, amen.